I mean, I've had some pretty bizarre experiences thinking of a restaurant in Kyoto. It was built in a very traditional way. So it's kind of paper thin walls and very tiny doors. And I just couldn't fit through the door. And so a kind of a few times I was bashing into the door frame and then um, whoever I was with tried to push me through the door and uh, it just wasn't happening. And all the staff from the restaurant rushed in or sort of rushed out to me and really wanted to help. So then they started kind of ramming the other door. In a little side room, there was this couple trying to have a romantic meal and the whole structure of the place was sort of being like thrown one way and the other and um, they were sort of trying to jam me through this door and there was a massive kerfuffle with all of these staff sort of intruding on their romantic meal and eventually they couldn't get me through so they got the chef out from the back and he started trying to shove me through this door and at this point we were just getting slightly embarrassed hello i'm alan hill in this podcast series of the nostalgic vagabond we're talking travel all kinds of travel, with all kinds of interesting people from all around the world. In conversation, we'll share personal anecdotes, tales of adventure, and maybe misadventure too. Listen in for some unique cultural perspectives, tips from seasoned veterans, and an array of diverse experiences that have contributed to many life-changing journeys. Travel really is a privilege. We know that now. And if we can't do it right this very moment, let's talk about it then. Hey, where are you right now? On this episode of the Nostalgic Vagabond podcast, I talk with Dr. Francis Borman. Not your typical doctor, Francis is a British historian, an expert on certain 18th century happenings in London. While not researching and writing books and papers, Francis enjoys travel and exploring new and interesting places in his spare time. What's a little more unique is that Francis uses his wheelchair to explore places afar and has managed to visit every continent except Australia, where I come from, and Antarctica, but let's not count that one. Seeing as Francis is an experienced traveller with a positive mindset and outlook on the serendipity of travel and adventure, I thought, why not get some interesting first-hand information on the accessible travel industry? In conversation, Francis reflects on some of his earliest travel memories as a kid with his family and schoolmates. He's very candid in describing what his first international trips were like after he became a wheelchair user as a young adult. We talk about some of the places he's been and particular favourites over the last 10 to 20 years. Flying with a wheelchair can make travel more complex. Francis takes me through a rundown on what the flying experience can be like, navigating through airports and the logistics of moving seats and making sure that the wheelchair survives the journey too. We talk about some travel mishaps that although can often not be the most comfortable at the time, they can end up a great anecdote. But I think one of the best things about Francis as a traveller is his attitude and mindset, which although is centred in the world of accessible travel, his way of thinking can be adopted by every traveller from everywhere. We get into some of the planning and the practicalities when travelling with a wheelchair, and touch on some things to think about, some websites to check out, insurance issues to look up, and other stuff to consider in general trip preparation. We talk about how the accessible travel industry has evolved, and continues to evolve, as greater investment, tech, and general awareness becomes available. Things are still not quite there yet. Better, but not perfect by any means. Dr. Francis shares his thoughts on how he'd like to see the industry continue to improve, and has some good advice for wheelchair users who want to travel when it's possible again, and also for their friends and family. The best thing, as Francis says, is to always think positive, always enjoy it. It's a holiday after all, and if things do go wrong, which they will from time to time, best thing is just to chill out, have a nice beer, and try again tomorrow. Anyways, let's get to the conversation. Welcome, Dr. Francis Bowman, and thanks for coming on the Nostalgic Vagabond podcast. No worries. So tell me, Francis, where exactly are you zooming in from today? So I'm at my flat in South London. Um, I've seen a little bit too much of it in the last year, but it's got a little bit of green space and lots of commons around it, so I certainly can't complain. I definitely feel like one of the lucky ones like that. And after a really crap May of constant rain and high winds, 
Uh, I'm zooming in from a sunny flat in South London, so feeling pretty good about that. A sunny flat in London is uh, is a is a, a blessing, usually, isn't it? Absolutely, it can be a rare thing, but. <laughs> Now, I'm excited to talk to you today on the podcast for a couple of reasons. Uh, One, I enjoy talking with you. And two, uh, I went volunteering with a charity called Backup uh, a few years ago now in Leeds. And there was a bunch of guys um, who were wheelchair users. They were learning about wheelchair skills. They were learning about navigating unfamiliar places, dealing with infrastructure that, that might not sort of know exactly how it works. And it was just an interesting exercise. And there were some guys who were a bit nervous, a bit unsure about traveling just domestically and especially internationally. And I thought, why not talk to somebody who has so much experience in traveling domestically and internationally and is also a wheelchair user to just sort of talk about accessible travel and how it's evolved over time and how accessible travel really is accessible. Can you tell me, first of all, Francis, like, who is Dr. Francis Borman? Sort of what do you do for work and what sort of things are you into in your leisure? Well, I suppose I should firstly say that I'm not the useful kind of doctor. I'm a doctor of history. So I spend all of my time researching and writing. And I've written about the history of London and some local areas in the centre of London. And at the moment, I'm working on arbitration, which is kind of a way of settling disputes. But I won't go into that any further because it can get quite technical. (laughs) And I suppose for fun, I really like to watch a lot of sports both live and on TV. I love trying new and different foods, reading. And I used to make some beer, but I don't have a lot of time for that now because I've got quite a young family. So I have to settle for drinking it when I can. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, I love travel. And one of the things I suppose that goes back to a lot of my other interests. So I like doing some of those things away in different places. So uh, trying new and different foods, but in the places that they came from. And also like to read a little bit of the history of the places that I go to, uh, although not to make it too much of a busman's holiday. I don't go too far into that. Yeah. So what I love about travel really is just going to new settings and putting aside some time for different experiences. I think a big thing about going away is you really make the space for just trying out new things and just wandering around aimlessly even sometimes seeing the way other people live and uh, seeing a new place and it's the kind of thing that you could do at home and I do sometimes remember to do that in my native London and set a day aside to just wander about and do some tourism and have some kind of serendipitous experiences um, is a big thing but often in daily life you kind of get sucked into the grind of it and forget to do that at home so I think going to a new place you're setting that time aside to see that place and have some cool new experiences yeah definitely it's very easy to let the London lifestyle take you away from that serendipitous and free-spirited travel but if you set your mind to it like you said you can set a day to be a tourist in your own city but when you are actually in a foreign city that's your only option isn't it yeah definitely so just for a bit of context, Francis, because this is about accessible travel and you're somebody who has lots of experience in accessible travel, could you just tell the listeners, why do you use a wheelchair and for how long have you been using a wheelchair? I've been using a wheelchair for about 17 years and it's because I sustained a spinal cord injury. So I pretty much broke my neck and that kind of severed a bit of the spinal cord and that causes paralysis. Um, I managed to do that falling out of a tree, which is uh, probably not my... Uh, finest hour but yeah that's that's why i've been using a wheelchair all that time i've known you for about 10 or so years and we've had lots of interesting conversations uh with you and your brother and and your family and friends and i'm aware that you did quite a lot of traveling with your family growing up in europe places like greece and 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 around south of of france and mediterranean and stuff like that and you also did some you know backpacking and and traveling with your mates from school what are some of your, your favorite memories from these trips? And did it kind of give you a travel bug as a teenager? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think like a lot of families in England, um, you know, we drove over to France a lot of times in the summer. Some of the places that really stick in my head, uh, some of the Greek islands, when I got a bit older, we flew over to those. And we went with a family friend who did loads of research and really wanted a kind of nice villa in a very secluded spot with good places to swim 
Um, so you'd fly into an airport and then take a boat trip, maybe a couple of hours to a tiny island. And that was really incredible, I suppose partly because it's so different to London where I grew up. We'd be in a, a little village and even though I was pretty young, kind of younger than 10, I'd just be okay to wander around on my own and um, had sort of interesting experiences like an old lady just giving me a bag of almonds from the tree in her front garden. And it's little things like that I remember that were, yeah, so, so different from my life at home in London. And the experience of going on those flights, I really remember, because it's so different to how it uh, is today. Uh, I suppose a big divider on that is 9-11 and all mm. the things that changed there. But being able to go in the cockpit and, uh, you know, look out of the front of the plane and some little things like instead of plugging your headphones into the armrest like you would today, they handed out funny little stethoscopes. So you were literally plugging a, a piece of rubber tubing into a hole and the music was being piped out of the this tiny hole so if you put your head right down to the headrest you could actually hear the music coming out absolutely bizarre <laughs> uh, so yeah there were some nice kind of memories like that of going away with my family and i guess it must have definitely given me the bug because me and a few friends uh decided to go away when we were about 16 so it feels quite young looking back really and it was just in a school summer holiday we went into railing set off just from from home and took a ferry across i think and then we went down through france through italy and went to a few different towns in italy pretty much skipped germany on a night train uh, ended up in amsterdam as a nice little blowout few days at the end of the trip yeah thinking back on that as well it's kind of incredible now that because we had no smart smartphones uh, mm -hmm. we had a european rail timetable in a book and just a book of the IYHA, the, the youth hostels. And yeah, pretty much did everything out of those, those couple of books and uh, yeah, wandered around for a few weeks. So it was a really, really great experience. Yeah, it seems so archaic now with everyone using smartphones and Google Maps and it's just so easy. But back in the day, it was a bit more difficult and slower, but still very possible. And Francis, I'm so jealous because I never got the experience to ride in the cockpit pre 911 oh, yeah. as a kid that that opportunity is never going to happen again is it <laughs> no absolutely not i can't imagine my mum being able to uh talk her way into a a cockpit again like that just <laughs> they were more than happy to let you sort of wander up and pointing out what all the buttons did and stuff and yeah i think that would spark a an international incident these days <laughs> Now, another thing that I found interesting while I was on this course in Leeds with these young guys and some older guys, actually, who are wheelchair users, a lot of them hadn't traveled much in their wheelchair, especially internationally. For many reasons, a lot of them uh, just sort of fear of the unfamiliar or not sure if they would be able to do it or especially if they would be able to do it on their own or away from their family. So I was just curious, Francis, can you look back and, and recall your first sort of international trip after you started using a wheelchair? Like, where did you go? Who did you go with? And if you can think back 17 years ago, do you remember the main concerns or worries you had for traveling at that time? Yeah, I suppose in some ways, I'm glad I did it pretty soon after starting to use a wheelchair because I guess maybe I was slightly naive about it. And really, because I had no idea what I was doing, I wasn't too worried but I was a bit more uh, gung-ho, if anything, back then. Um, and I might have more concerns now, but then I just went for it. And probably the first time I went away was um, with the same group of friends, actually, that I'd been interrailing with a couple of years before. Mm. Um, and we drove to the north of France, just went across using a ferry, and someone's parents had a house there, which made it reasonably easy. Although it wasn't completely adapted or anything, luckily they just had a shower room downstairs. Still needed to get up a step to that, so it was slightly interesting with <laughs> uh, little little problems like that. But um, yeah, it was certainly manageable, reasonably easy to to kind of navigate. Particularly, I think going in a car makes it so much easier because you can pack as much stuff as you want. And back then, I would have been taking a lot more stuff than I would now. Um, I'm a bit more pared down now. I know exactly what I need to take away with me. 
but yeah, that, that trip was just such a big relief after spending ages in hospital and doing loads of rehab. Um, it was a really nice way to, yeah, mark starting out on, on life again, really. But I also remember another trip that I should give special mention to, which was the first time I think I'd been on a plane since being a wheelchair user. And that was just with my, my parents to Dublin. And I think my mum's very proactive and she's not really afraid to ask a lot of questions and hassle people like hotels and stuff to find out how they're set up. And so her doing all that research helped me kind of work out how it could be done and the kinds of questions that I needed to ask and organise all those sorts of practicalities for, for accessible travel. Um, do you remember how old you were at that time when your mum was helping you out get all the sort of the ins and outs of international travel by plane and staying abroad in hotels? Uh, I guess must have been about 18 or 19. Yeah. And were you at university then or was that before university? Um, certainly the trip to France was just before I went to university. So I did a kind of period of rehab and then managed to get away before I I started my first university term. I think our trip to Dublin was maybe in a university holiday, but during probably during my first year or after my first year at uni. And obviously those adventures abroad were quite positive, if not for their own little intricacies and uh, idiosyncrasies. Obviously, you've done so much more, so they must have been affirming and uh, building confidence in you that you can go further and further away from your native England. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I had a really good time on both of those. And I suppose maybe I'm glad that they were reasonably simple trips, just going to one single place and uh, just by generally one sort of mode of transport made it a little bit easier. But yeah, they definitely, because I had a good time on both of those, made me feel like I could do more uh, complicated trips further afield. Yeah, just go see some more places. Speaking of which, uh, you've been to every continent bar my home continent of Australia these days in the last you know, 20 years of, of your, your traveling experience. Your wheelchair has survived. You've survived. So how many countries would you say you've visited now? And do you have any favorites or any favorite you know, specific destinations, whether they're cities or towns or geographical? Yeah, the wheels had, wheelchairs had a few scrapes, uh, <laughs> I'd say mostly courtesy of EasyJet, but yeah, we've, we've both made it through. Um, so yeah, a quick count of countries. I did this beforehand and worked out maybe something like 30, which I think is cheating slightly coming from Europe because you managed to get through loads um, sometimes on a single trip, just uh, passing through a fair few on the way somewhere else. But um I mean, there's plenty of favorites. One I'd say is Japan, just because it had such a different culture. Um, and it was just really interesting seeing the way people live their daily lives. And even the tiny details, like seeing someone with a trolley service on the train, getting to the end of the carriage and bowing to everyone. It's kind of absolutely amazing and not the kind of experience you get on like a a virgin West Coast train. I think UK rail travelers will uh, be yeah very appreciative of of the idea of someone being so polite and nice um but also <laughs> i love italy and all the different small towns there and the wonderful local food scenes and there's some very very beautiful places architecturally so yeah italy's a favorite in europe so i want to talk about flying uh you mentioned flying francis and as a wheelchair user there's a few more complexities that are involved with flying that that I wanted to talk about. I, I know a few wheelchair users around the UK and further afield who sometimes are quite worried about flying because there's there's a few things that can go wrong. Sometimes, you know, they're concerned about sitting down in one place for a, a long time if they're doing a long haul flight, say to you know, Japan, for example, or, or maybe South America, or even going all the way to Australia. They're always worried about the wheelchair because, as you know, there's there's components on wheelchairs that sometimes can be fragile and with rough baggage handlers not giving a rat's ass, it can get bounced around and, and thrown through tunnels and things and get damaged potentially, which is just going to ruin your holiday, isn't it? So I was just wondering if, if you could, let's let's paint a scenario, Francis. Let's imagine you're at your home in, in London and you, let's say you're going to Gatwick and you're flying internationally. So what would be a typical process for you, so let's say, sitting at home, having your lunch, to then being sat on the plane, ready to take off and ready to eat dinner again? So I suppose there's a lot of pre-work involved. You've got to have 
made sure they know that you're coming in advance and you book in all your assistants. Uh, so I would have done all of that before I was having my lunch and <laughs> told them all about some extra baggage I might bring, you know, and, and told them about the, the wheelchair I'm going to bring. So then I'd set off, get some assistance on a, a train. Um, so they'd give me ramps and everything. I'd get to the airport. It, there's certainly no kind of speedy check-in. You very much have to go and speak to someone at a desk and let them know you're there and they give you all the usual tags and everything but also tag up your wheelchair uh, so that that gets put in the hold and hopefully fingers crossed uh, emerges again at your destination um, <laughs> and then you send off all your bags and usually go and get someone to help you through the airport which is one of the bits where you feel a, a little bit privileged because they take you through a fast lane and move you pretty quickly uh, through everywhere then yeah, you get to boarding like everyone else. And um, it's, I suppose, that point where things become a little bit different because uh, they then often take you up to the plane a little bit earlier and transfer you over into what they call an aisle seat, which is essentially like a wheelchair, which is small enough that can fit all the way down the aisle of the plane and takes you right to your seat. And so at that point, they take your wheelchair hopefully stuff it in the hold in a, a careful and sensible manner. Um, and there's usually a couple of people that will take you down the aisle and then they transfer you over to your seat. You know, I, I can't use my legs at all. So they, it takes two people to lift me across and hopefully all of that goes smoothly. Uh, not always, you know, sometimes for the best will in the world, they just haven't really received the training and, don't entirely know what they're doing and at that point you have to be reasonably assertive in kind of telling them the sorts of things that you need and they're usually fairly um open to uh, helping you in in every way they can and you can get other problems involving other passengers they can be a little bit interesting so sometimes they're not overly happy about uh stepping out of their seat for you to uh, uh be kind of moved across or lifted across a couple of seats but when they realize that uh, you're going to be thrown onto them if they don't get out of the way, they tend to sort of leap up really quickly. But I would say most people are very helpful. Yeah, are really sort of willing to, to go out of their way to, to help you out in any way they can. The one thing I would say about flying is that I don't particularly enjoy it. Um, and I know, I mean, a lot of people that don't need a load of assistance also don't particularly enjoy it. But for me, it's a means to an end. And it's definitely worth doing uh, because it gets me to lots of interesting places and unless you've got a lot of time and and you can spend a week on a, a boat or something uh it's just not doable without them so uh, it's a bit of hassle but it's really not too bad yeah it's it's really worth it from my point of view yeah it gives you the opportunity time efficient to go to places like north america and south america and east asia and sort of grin and bear a 10-hour uncomfortable journey but then have a few weeks enjoying a foreign place right yeah yeah you've been to a bunch of places and i'm sure in certain countries in certain towns maybe certain rural settings from time to time you've encountered some uh practical logistical or maybe just some unlucky situations maybe some super funny ones have you got any examples of, of interesting pickles that you found yourself in and, and how did you get through them yeah, I mean, with the flying, you get all sorts of bizarre experiences. So you turn up in a place, and I've been to fairly small towns, one in Denmark, say, where the local fire service was just brought in, and a couple of firemen would get on the plane and hoik you down the steps rather than having a, a specific kind of trained load of people at the airport. They, yeah, they just brought in the firemen, um, which worked really well. <laughs> and I think one thing that a lot of uh, wheelchair users who have traveled around a bit, I've seen it mentioned by the, the BBC correspondent, Frank Gardner, who he's security correspondent and I think was involved in a shooting and has had to, to use a wheelchair ever since. And he's certainly talked about getting stuck on planes. So when you arrive, just no one turns up to take you off. And uh, that's definitely happened to me a few times. You just have to wait around and it's pretty boring and can be quite frustrating and you can end up on there for, for quite a long time. But it's yeah certainly not the end of the world and someone always comes in the end. I suppose some, some more unusual and amusing ones in Turkish security. Uh, I came back from a, a very enjoyable holiday in Istanbul and got to a, 
a fairly uh, serious looking man with a fairly serious looking rifle who said that he wanted to pat down my chair. And of course I said, yeah, well, that's fine. Uh, no problem at all, go ahead. But then he, he made it known that he wanted me to get out of the chair and sit on a wooden box that he brought for that. And I can't stand up. So I just said, I can't do it. But he <laughs> said, you have to do it. Uh, I just said, well, I, I can't do it. And he was getting more annoyed and thinking that I was trying to kind of mess around with his system. And so he kept on telling me I had to do it. And eventually I said, well, not really knowing what else to say, they don't do this in America. And at that point, I thought I'd really screwed up and I was going to really piss him off. And that kind of throwing in the American example was the worst thing I possibly could have said. And that that was going to be me kind of being strip searched for the next two days in a, a dark room in Turkey. But instead, he just nodded and said, oh, OK, OK, then. Well, in that case, you're fine. And I couldn't quite believe it. He just, yeah, waved me on and, and decided the American example was good enough for him. Oh, that's brilliant, man. Uh, we've we've travelled together uh, a number of times now for your academic uh, work and, and for fun too in America and Europe and Asia. What I've found, Francis, is you have uh, an attitude of like, I guess you were describing it as gung-ho when you were younger. But for me, at least from my experience travelling with you is you don't seem to worry about stuff. It's like, yeah, if shit goes down, we'll just deal with it when we have to deal with it. So I was wondering if you've always been of that mindset or have you kind of developed and grown personally to to have that mindset where, yeah, there are some issues that might happen um, because I'm a wheelchair user, but what's the point of worrying about it because it might not happen? And if it does, well, I'll just deal with it. Yeah, I think... Probably part of that is down to just my uh, attitude to things and the way that I, my yeah, my sort of natural outlook on life, I guess. I wouldn't say there's a sort of right or wrong way to plan things like that. And I, I would definitely say that planning more uh, allows you to make things run more smoothly. Um, and if stuff going wrong does upset you, you can definitely put in a bit more planning and have less things go wrong but uh I, yeah i suppose part of the attitude thing for me is that i do like to organize things a little bit less you know i certainly need to up to a point just to make sure they are to some extent accessible and that does make life easier but yeah i also try to remember that i am going on holiday out my own choice and that is a holiday and so if you let every little thing upset you and inevitably some things will go wrong, whether you need a kind of more accessible travel or not. So you've just got to try and enjoy the, the different serendipitous experiences that you end up stumbling into because one thing doesn't work out and say, if you can't get into one restaurant, then you can just go to one round the corner and enjoy that instead. And so, yeah, for me, actually, in a sense, I also need to accept the fact that because I like doing things a bit more spontaneously, then probably a few more things are, are going to go wrong or <laughs> not quite work out in the way that I was hoping. But if they don't, then I always feel like I can find something else to do that I will probably enjoy and um, that, that most things are fixable in some way. I suppose that I'd have a good example is when I, I went to Sicily with my girlfriend and booked an accessible hotel uh, had kind of worked out and looked on the internet and felt like it had all of the things that I needed and it was a really good lesson in realizing that for all of your forethought and planning uh, things can go wrong you know I checked that the bathroom was accessible that it had a roll-in shower and um, that it had a lift uh, up to the the floor that I was staying on um, all of the kinds of things that I need to look out for in hotel rooms. And then I got there and then it had all of those things, but it also had a flight of stairs up to all of those things. So a flight of stairs to get into the building. <laughs> and so this flight of stairs was in front of the lift. It was in front of the accessible bathroom. It was a pretty big obstacle to navigate first. And there was a guy there who was very apologetic and said he could help me out and that he could hoik me up that flight of stairs and and he did that and then we got to the lift and then the lift door was too narrow as well so then this really helpful guy who was by then 
sort of flagging a little bit helped me take a wheel off my wheelchair and then my girlfriend could hold me up on one wheel whilst in the lift sort of crammed in and then just about maneuver me back out and put the wheel back on and then once we've done all this he said oh and by the way I leave at nine so at that point you're trapped inside and I think for me the lesson there was also that it's a good idea to cut your losses and when I looked at that I thought, well, if I'm trapped inside after 9 p.m., you know, it'd be nice to be able to stay out a little bit later than that and not feel like you're on curfew. <laughs> and if I have to go through this whole rigmarole, then is there any way that I can just do something else? And at that point, uh, we just booked another hotel for a couple of nights. The only one available was like a, a four-star one or something. So I think my girlfriend was over the moon that we were staying somewhere much nicer and more expensive than I would usually uh, kind of accept. <laughs> and so it worked out in the end and we stayed there for one night it was okay but definitely not ideal and I guess that also taught me that having a bit of a contingency fund is a pretty good idea because in some situations basically the only way to escape or uh, find a more accessible solution is just to buy your way out so having a little bit of spare money is not a bad idea yeah, if you can yeah you were just mentioning now that, you know, you like to plan out of necessity, but you also like to not plan too much because you're quite into the adventurous side of traveling and having serendipitous experiences, even if they do sometimes go wrong. So in terms of when you're traveling abroad and thinking about transits and transfers, accommodations, attractions, locations, accessible facilities and infrastructures, do you have any go-to websites or have you figured out particular blogs or how do you go about planning all these different aspects to try and minimize, you know, shit going down when you're away? Yeah, I suppose um, a lot of it's site specific. So if you just Google different destinations, then um, there's often a lot of uh, various information, sometimes from locals who are in, uh, who are wheelchair users um, and they kind of like to post some stuff about their local city and, different ways to get around and um, you know there's obviously sort of local city guides of varying usefulness so some places have so much information about their public transport and places to stay and uh, things to do that are accessible and other places have next to nothing and uh, you just have to be a bit adventurous if that's uh, your taste in things and just go there and hope for the best and and work it out when you do get there i think a lot of mainstream websites have gotten a lot better so the big sort of hotel booking places like hotels.com now have check boxes for accessible features so you can choose to have a role in showering a bathroom and things like that so uh, that makes things a lot easier as well but yeah for me it's nice having sections on a mainstream website like that because you don't necessarily want to plan your entire trip on looking for accessible places to go you want to look for places to go and then work out how accessible they are and kind of it's two different way rounds of doing things but or, or of thinking about places and you don't necessarily always want to just find the most accessible places and go there uh, you want to attempt to try and uh, go to the places you're interested in um, to whatever extent you can get into them yeah totally a practical thing that I'm sure you've had some experience in is what do you do about travel insurance? And do you need to be careful with the type of travel insurance you take? And do you have any tips for, for listeners there who might be a bit unaware of insurances that you need with uh, traveling with a wheelchair? Yeah, so I do need specialist travel insurance. And I think for a lot of different medical problems or um, even for people that uh, a bit older, you often need um, slightly more specialist travel insurance. Uh, it does cost a bit more, but like anyone else, I just go on a, a price comparison site. So I think the one that I use is called Medical Travel Compared, seem to remember. And yeah, that, that's pretty easy, really. You just have to answer a load more questions about general health, but they're very specialist and tailored to um, lots of individual conditions. So you just write in a few things about your condition and it asks you a few more questions, but it's reasonably easy and it's still 
doesn't break the bank it's it's a bit more than your standard travel insurance but yeah it's not too bad at all and it certainly gives you peace of mind that if something's going to go really wrong then uh, they should hopefully pick up the pieces yeah with all this experience you've had traveling over the years and traveling finding accessible ways of getting to the places you want to see i imagine you've watched the evolution of the accessible travel industry over that time would you say that you found it to be reasonably acceptable or disappointing or surprisingly accommodating uh, in general with accessibility overall? Or have there been particular countries or particular places that you've been to where you've been very impressed or very disappointed with the types of accessibility they have? Yeah, I mean, it really varies. Um, you get some places that are absolutely incredible across the board, some that are absolutely terrible across the board, and some with uh, very patchy, mixed records. I suppose you think of rich countries as being places where, because they have the funding and the knowledge about accessibility, things should be a lot better, but I haven't always found that to be the case. Um, one place that springs to mind was going to Norway. And when I got there, there was just no accessible airport transfers. Uh, that's definitely a bugbear that when you turn up at an airport, often they only have coaches with a, a fairly decent flight of stairs up and no room for a wheelchair underneath anyway. And in Norway, that was exactly the case that there were pretty much only coaches uh, kind of going from the airport and in the end had to ring up for a taxi that took uh, kind of getting on for an hour to come and um, I mean nothing's cheap in Norway but uh, it was fairly <laughs> eye-wateringly expensive as well so it's kind of disappointing when um, your only option is just to spend a load of money on kind of a, a mode of transport that is not necessarily any better than what you could have done if you were able to just get on a coach or something like that but uh, then again saying about mixed records uh, Norway also had some absolutely incredible trains with uh, the biggest spaces for wheelchairs I've seen and um, <laughs> although with the downside that I did have to share it with a full children's playground but uh, that's another story <laughs> uh, pretty impressive that they got a children's playground on a train anyway um, in terms of some places that were really good, anywhere with uh, a new public transport system, uh, thinking of somewhere like Taipei, I had a great time there and it's amazing to be able to, well, just get off at every stop on their, their metro system coming from London. That is definitely not the experience uh, that you get uh, around here. So that was uh, pretty impressive. And then, yeah, like you say, on expectations, it's really interesting seeing some of the cultural differences. So in some places, like I've noticed in Italy, you get in free to things like exhibitions or museums, but you get in free as the disabled person, whereas in places like the States, uh, you can take a carer in free. But if you can access the place on your own, then you have to pay because essentially they're saying that you're like anybody else, which I think is a, a good attitude to have. Mm. One place that does bring to mind as being really accessible was um, my girlfriend and I went to Grenoble quite a few years ago now and they just had really good trams all with level access um, everything felt really easy we stayed in a really good youth hostel that they don't always have accessible rooms but uh, this one was brilliant and I was told at the time that it was because the the winter olympics had been there and I did look that up uh, in thinking about uh, places that were accessible for for our chat and the Winter Olympics had been there in 1968, apparently. So I can't think that that was actually uh, really why it, it was so good. For some reason, it was really well set up. Yeah, you must have noticed since the 2012 London Games that the accessible travel had improved quite a bit in London as well. Yeah, definitely. There's a lot more signposting after that. And um, a few more places were had lifts put in and things. So, yeah, the London transport was definitely, definitely improved generally over the years but i think the olympics did make a bit of a difference so yeah maybe the big big bit of advice is follow the olympics follow the paralympics and maybe you'll get a better experience <laughs> <laughs> so go to japan when it's safe after the olympics this year yeah 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 japan in six months time could be uh, at the peak of its game in providing accessibility <laughs> <laughs> from your experience traveling how have you found people react to international travels who use wheelchairs? And have you sort of had any funny encounters? 
I'd say they are generally really enthusiastic and they really want to help you and to help you enjoy their wonderful country and have a good time and see everything that anyone else would see whilst they're there. So, I mean, I've had some pretty bizarre experiences thinking of a restaurant in Kyoto. It was built in a very traditional way. So it's kind of paper thin walls and very tiny doors and I just couldn't fit through the door. And so uh, kind of a few times I was bashing into the door frame and then um, whoever I was with tried to push me through the door and uh, it just wasn't happening. And all the staff from the restaurant rushed in or sort of rushed out to me and really wanted to help. So then they started kind of ramming the other door. In a little side room, there was this couple trying to have a romantic meal and the whole structure of the place was sort of being like thrown one way and the other and um, they were sort of trying to jam me through this door and there was a massive kerfuffle with all of these staff sort of intruding on their romantic meal and eventually they couldn't get me through so they got the chef out from the back and he started trying to shove me through this door and at this point we were just getting slightly embarrassed and said don't worry about it we'll we'll just go somewhere else it's really not a problem I thank you so much for trying so hard but they really were insistent that I should have their food. So uh, they insisted on uh, kind of lifting my chair up and they took uh, both my wheels off and squeezed me through this tiny doorway and then carried them through behind me and put them back on again. So it was absolutely amazing that they just were not going to settle for me not being able to experience their food. <laughs> I suppose in the other direction, and I should emphasize that this was very much an exception, but I remember being in Slovenia and uh, we were in the, the beautiful area of Lake Bled and it was absolutely pissing with rain and it just pissed with rain for days and days. And so at one point we just decided we had to go out for a walk anyway. Um, and go and see some of the, the beautiful countryside. So we, we walked through the lashing rain for ages and got to these waterfalls that we heard were amazing. And they had a little ticket booth where they they sort of let you into this, this little park with the waterfalls. And uh, there were these two really mean looking old women that they really resembled witches because there was like a stove in the hut and they were kind of hunched over it and uh, it was kind of steamy. And uh, so we asked them what was going on, where we got tickets. And they said, oh, no, but it's it's not accessible, these waterfalls. And we said, well, we've come all this way in the rain. So <laughs> maybe could we just go in and have a look anyway? And they said, well, you'll only get 100 meters into the park. And we said, well, could we just look that 100 meters? And they said, yes, but you definitely have to pay and you're not going to enjoy it. And so we're like, wow, well, we've, we've come all this way. I suppose we may as well just give you the money. Uh, and so we did pay them. And sure enough, you couldn't get very far. But I was glad to see what I could see anyway. But yeah, the, the fact that they wouldn't just let us walk that 100 meters just on a discounted rate, maybe, or anything. And just the fact that they were so flatly miserable about the whole thing was it was almost enjoyably grim. They were just really, really mean, mean, bitter old women. And uh, we came back and sure enough, they kind of smiled at us and were like, oh, you couldn't see much, could you? Yeah, thanks for your money, by the way. And it's just, uh, wow. they were really mean. <laughs> I'd say that, it, yeah, very much an exception. And that one really stands out because it's so rare and people are usually so pleased to try and help you in any way they can. And, you know, if something's not accessible like that, usually uh, they're a bit more apologetic and more than happy to give you a bit of a discount or maybe even take you to show you what you can see uh, or give you some other suggestions or something. Yeah. So I know you've had a fairly difficult sort of lockdown experience being stuck in London and, and stuck in Britain in general. Do you have any destinations on the radar uh, when it's safe uh, for traveling either for work or with your young family? Yeah, yeah, it's been a, well, I wouldn't go as far as to say difficult, but a fairly constrained year. It definitely hasn't been much travel going on. Um, so yeah, I've got, a, well, always got a long list of places that I'd love to go to. Russia's always been one where I've always been interested in the history and the literature and things. So I'd love to make it there. And then loads of other pipe dreams like Jordan, uh, Albania is one that's always stuck in my mind for some reason. 
But at the moment with young kids, I think probably we won't be going on any really long haul trips because the thought of uh, a toddler stuck in a tin can for 10 hours is uh, not really my ideal. So um, <laughs> in a couple of weeks, I'm, I'm off to Dorset and I think I will really appreciate even a very short trip in the UK. Just um, anywhere that's not my back garden or my local common seems pretty exciting to me right now. And then uh, maybe some trips up up north in the UK in the near future. The the Scottish islands have always appealed to me, so mm. that might be one that we can get get the kids to, and it, it won't be such a traumatic experience kind of going with them on really long trips. So uh, yeah, lo lots of ideas. Well, let's hope that the the general restrictions are eased soon, and we can all get to a few more interesting and nice places. Yeah, here, here, mate, here, here. So, Francis, it's time for... My favourite four. Are you ready? I am. Dr. Francis Borman, what is your favourite time of day? Late afternoon. What is your favourite national flag design? Oh, well, I quite like Nepal. Nice. What is your favourite geographical landmark? Tutingbeck Common. <laughs> <laughs> The, the local. Nice. This might be a difficult one, or it might not be. What is your favourite book? Oh, that is difficult. You've read so I've many. I've thought eh? about that for far too long. And, <laughs> well, I, I'm in love with a lot of different ones. I'll have to settle on one. Maybe I'll go for Oscar and Lucinda by your compatriot Peter Carey. Ah. And when did you read that? Do you remember? Or a long time ago now, mm. more than 15 years ago, I guess. And it still holds true. So it must have been a damn good book. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. There's something about it. I really love the characters in that one. So, uh, yeah, if I, have to, if I have to nail down one, I'll go for that for now. I'll probably have changed my mind by tomorrow. But... <laughs> my favourite four. In your opinion... What ways do you think accessible travel can still improve generally? Some places, I guess, have old infrastructure. And to change that, you just need a lot of investment. Um, of course, it would be great if everywhere could have a lift up to it, if everywhere could be made accessible. So lots of improvements could be done just in my native London. Lots of train stations could have lifts, but I totally accept that for some places uh, it just costs too much and you can't necessarily uh, dig a lift shaft down to every tube station or anything like that. So sometimes it's just doing the simple things. One I've never understood is why all train stations or tube stations can't just have a level platform because some places manage this. It's never really made any sense to me that uh, you should particularly need a step up and mm. for everyone, it's kind of easier if that's the case. So uh, that would be one sort of uh, bugbear where I, I don't quite get why it couldn't be changed. Um, but really, a lot of it's down to information. I guess the Internet's changed everything like, like it has for most people. But it, it would always be good to have more information on accessibility. So, yeah, if more businesses could just share uh, whether they've got steps up or kind of, yeah, whether whether... Uh, they've got any access issues or features that that would really help and I think that's a good one for say small businesses because they can't necessarily afford to to make all the changes that big chains can um, which is sometimes kind of boring because you end up going to say big chain hotels that don't necessarily have much local charm but at least you know that they can accommodate you but I think for small businesses of course they can't throw loads of money at uh, necessarily making everything accessible but if they can just share that information then at least you can make a, a kind of informed choice on on whether they'll be usable or not and one thing I would say is sometimes if uh, people could take the time to not just think about whether they're providing access to someone with a disability but whether uh, that access is actually going to be in any way enjoyable so you know getting you into say a an incredible scenic train or something sometimes they take all the time to get you in but then they don't bother to um, make any space by a window say so <laughs> you know sometimes sort of thinking that through past just uh, being able to let you in and then getting to the point where actually you get the 
the value of the experience as well. Mm. So just being more mindful about the reality of people are spending money to enjoy themselves. And so maximizing that possibility, thinking sensibly and maximizing that possibility. Yeah, yeah. Lastly, Francis, if anyone's listening who is a wheelchair user or is a a friend or family member of somebody who's a wheelchair user, and maybe they have concerns about international travel, maybe they've they've never done it before and they're apprehensive about whether it's dangerous or or whether they're, they're going to be able to do it or they're just not sure. Could you give them any advice and also some charities or websites or places where they could find more help, guidance and assistance on accessible travel? Yeah, so there's absolutely loads on the internet, of course. Um, I know there's some accessible travel companies uh, where they can organize your whole trip for you and uh, have a load of expertise in accessibility. I, I guess I've never used that myself, partly because I enjoy organizing my own thing. But obviously, if you go with the travel company, uh, it's going to cost you a bit more money. So I've probably preferred to save my pennies and just uh have a have a go at doing it myself speaking to people who've done it is always a good idea the care company i use has given me some good advice over the years um so they've got some kind of advice documents and things like that and then uh, there's lots of sort of disability organizations so one relevant to me is the spinal injuries association so i know i've gotten some some tips from that over the years but yeah i guess my only advice would really be that if if you feel the urge to go see some new places, then yeah, just go and do it. And as I found, it's probably not a bad idea to start small and get your bearings a bit. And I certainly found that single locations are a bit easier because then you're only planning one place. If you're only staying in one place, then you can sort of work out the accessibility of of that one hotel and use that as a base to go around different places and then yeah you'll I'm sure you'll be able to build up to doing some bigger trips and going as as crazy as you like in the long run and you certainly hear of you know people in wheelchairs doing everything right up to uh, scaling Mount Kilimanjaro which is I must admit not one that's on my list at the moment I'm maybe not quite that adventurous <laughs> but yeah I suppose the only other bit of advice would be to have that attitude where you're there to enjoy yourself so whatever happens just try and go with it and try and enjoy it and when your grand plans go wrong just sometimes it's best to give up and go and have a beer and uh, go and start somewhere else the next day yeah that's that's really good advice well francis really enjoyed the chat as always so i just like to say thanks for coming on and i hope you enjoyed your experience on the nostalgic vagabond podcast yeah thank you yeah it's been uh, really nice thinking back on some uh, some good old memories and some some good trips of my own all right well i'll let you get out and enjoy that london sunshine so i'll say cheers and bye-bye cheers thanks for listening to the nostalgic vagabond i hope you enjoyed listening to our conversation and if you would like to listen to other interesting talks on travel there are more podcasts available Check them out wherever you get your podcasts. And for updates, just follow me at The Nostalgic V. Don't forget, your journey is special. Own it. I've been Alan Hill. Until next time. Hey guys, if you enjoy listening to The Nostalgic Vagabond, why not support the podcast? If you haven't already, subscribe and you'll be notified when new apps drop. You can also support the podcast by leaving a rating or a review on your podcast app. Why not share this episode? Tell your friends about it if something resonated with you. Word of mouth is great promotion. If you're into social media, maybe post a screenshot of the episode or upload the link on your profile so your mates can see what interesting content you've been into lately. All your support comes straight back and helps to keep the travel content and nostalgia of this podcast going. Cheers. So don't forget to subscribe.